Good morning and welcome to Coffee with the Sarlows. I'm Kelly. Good morning. I'm Karen. And today we are very excited. We are welcoming back um, 2016's favorite guest on Coffee with the Sarlows, Mr. Jim Lennox. Thank you for coming. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, today we're actually doing, I'll say, History Lesson Part 3. Is that good? Uh, absolutely. Part okay. 3. So I'm going to sit back like a student in awe and just sort of listen to the stories and hopefully pipe in with some questions along the way, because um, these are mainly things that have come up between you and Karen in your sessions, yes? Absolutely. Okay, and through tons of investigation as well. Oh, yes. Okay, so the other side, Jim's hard work and Karen as a conduit. Begin. <laughs> <laughs> All right, part three. Uh Considering part one and two was done way back in June, um, I'm going to quickly touch on a few of the key points before going into part three. And some, some of part three is going to dive back into part one and two anyway, because there was some new stuff that came up. But uh, yeah, so the story dealing with my late grandfather over in Europe during the Second World War. He was a member of the Dutch Army. Uh, he fought uh, the Germans, uh, was taken prisoner of war into what was then Germany, but what used to be Poland, uh, the city of Posen, that'll be, I believe, part one. And uh, so if you want to hear about that one, you can go back to part one. He was released with the rest of the Dutch POWs shortly after, and under the promise that he'd be a good boy and not, not cause any problems, which, of course, didn't happen. So he went off and joined a resistance group. We touched on some of that as well in part one and part two. And uh, let's say November 1944, he was arrested as a member of this resistance group and taken prisoner to somewhere. At the time uh, when this all started, uh, our first, one of our first couple of sessions actually, he had no idea where he went. And, and that's where this whole thing started to, to, to mushroom. So since then, many, many sessions, we have learned where he went a camp just about 10 kilometers north of Auschwitz. And everybody knows where Auschwitz is. And if you don't, it's pretty easy to find on, on the map. But the camp, we've never come up with a name. We've never come up with a purpose. And we really still at this point have no idea why he went there. I mean, he could have gone anywhere, many different places. So for people who are just maybe tuning into episode three, um, your grandfather comes through in riddles, correct? Oh, yes. Riddles. Okay. He loves riddles. So he, he gives Karen and you kind of bits and clues um, that you you walk away and piece together kind of weeks and months at a time before you return. Oh, 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 yeah. Like, I don't think, apart from maybe a few pieces of information, most of this has all been riddles and, and clues that have had to be put together. Uh, very, very infrequently do we get a straight, you know, this is it. Right. And a lot of a lot of that kind of comes from the fact that, like you were just saying, he didn't know where he was. He didn't know what was going on, didn't see where he was kind of carted to. Yeah. Yeah. He's, it's okay. like he's bringing the information out as he was aware or unaware at that very moment, which which actually makes it very interesting uh, and appeals to me as, as a retired investigator. You know, it gives me something to do. Sometimes a little bit more than I want to do, but it's all, you know, it's, it's all good stuff. So can I explain as the medium? Oh yeah. That um your your grandfather comes through to me to say things verbally to you, uh, wish her the riddles, but also that I always hold a pen and paper 
and that you have all of the handwritten notes that I have done. So that might be interesting for people to hear because some of it's automatic writing. Um, and sometimes uh, as if they look on the, our website by sarlo.com, they'll see that sometimes there have been maps and you have gone and confirmed and found the maps on Google search um, or whatever. You can, cl- you can cl- uh, yeah. correct me at any time. And that some of it comes down as in little drawings or the way that the, he places words on the page, which I don't try to control. So he might flip the page and write things weirdly. And I, you might be able to understand or add or explain some of that. Because in all honesty, as the, as the channeler, as the medium, I don't get it. Yeah, it's, it, it's very, very interesting. And it, it actually took... Well, I'm going to say a handful of sessions for me to kind of clue in that where you doodled on the page, because it's not always legible writing. Sometimes it's just something, a shape or something that, that is on the paper. Um, it's not only how you drew it, but where you drew it and with what else you put with it. And so at face value, you would look at something, one of these doodles on the page and it, it sends you off researching something that's pertinent to the Second World War, but not pertinent to his story, right? So in a sense, you're getting all this extra learning in and extra research uh, in just trying to figure this whole thing out, right? And there have been some wild trails way out in the left field, and I'm sure there's going to be many more, but that, that's all part of it, I guess. And it gives me a better idea of the whole scope of the story, not just his little part in this thing so it's actually kind of neat but uh some of the doodles are pretty wild i can't show you anybody on 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 uh, this media obviously but uh we can take them though jim with your consent because even though i'm the one that does the doodling as everyone knows if they're a client of mine that i hand the doodling to each client i don't keep anything so they're your property. So if you want them to be scanned, Kelly can scan them. I'm offering Kelly here. Kelly does the scanning. <laughs> <laughs> I know where my place is. Let's just say this <laughs> oh, yeah. in the social media scheme. Um, but she can put that up if you want to be able to explain things. Right. Well, there might okay. there might be some that will uh, you know help listeners maybe figure out exactly how I went where I went with this. Jim, can can. Okay, quickly ask you a question. I don't know if this is going to be totally out of context. If it is, stop me right away. Um, You were talking about him being in the resistance group, and I remember a picture um, of the resistance group, uh, and I remember talking about the different people that were in it before you showed it to me, and then you brought the picture in, and I I pointed out your grandfather and some of the other men in the photo and what they did. Right. Is that resist? Is that picture of the resistance group up on the? Oh, it yeah, is. So yeah. people can go back uh, to podcast that uh, the second show and see that because some of them might recognize your grandfather or some of the other people because that's a very popular resistance group. Yeah. The the photo. Um, well, the, the photo is probably more popular than the group is. Oh. Um. It, it's a case. Sorry with- about my wording. <laughs> Well, just to be, you know, this is down to specifics and uh, there's not many photos of resistance groups at that time. This one happened to be out there. So in in Wikipedia and all the other different websites that that, that talk about uh, Dutch resistance, 
they just, oh, there's a picture. Let's grab that and attach it to the site and say, oh, here's a picture of a resistance group in Holland, right? So that photo has been used all over the internet. But if you look at the photo, sometimes it has names attached to it for the people that are in it. And as we found out very quickly, a lot of those names were false. Uh, you know, for security reasons, they used false names. Like, why wouldn't you, right? Some of them on there are correct because they've since been identified and, and put up on different sites with the correct names. But there's still quite a few in the most recent publication, still quite a few of them that are not correct. And you're sorry, just interrupt. You're saying false because those people or those individuals chose to go under false names. Uh, absolutely. Not because Web has just purposely oh, no. done this. No, no. Um, it, you know, understand during the war that if you are a member of an illegal organization, which this would have been, um, you're not going to put your real name out there, right? They're all going to be Smiths or whatever you want to want to use, right? Uh, just for security reasons, right? And, and, and they would, when they're doing their operations, they would use these fake names uh, so that there was absolutely no chance of their real name being identified and associated with this group. So it only makes sense. Why the picture was taken in the first place has always been a question of mine, and that'll be one discussion we have one day, because for security reasons, why would you even allow a photo to be taken? But they did. To so. make history. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's their little moment. So... So you're wanting to kind of launch into some some new stuff, or are we recapping any of uh, one and two still? Uh, pretty much that, that that does kind of recap. Except I th I believe we left off. Um, he he was at that camp, this unknown camp, uh, for a very short period of time, and just to bring his history in, so we can associate a little better. Um, at that time would have been uh, late. But in late 1944, very early 1945, and the Soviets were making their big push to the east, or to the west, sorry, and uh, they were getting very close. And all these camps, concentration camps, along the way through Poland and occupied Poland uh, were slowly being evacuated. And all those prisoners and guards and whatever else was going with them were moving closer to central Germany and down towards Dachau where it was a little bit more secure. So a lot of them, the camps to the east of where he was, had already been evacuated. So the Soviets would have gotten to his area, where this camp was, mid-January 1945. So there was a lot of pressure to get people out of there. Hitler did not want the prisoners to fall into the Allied uh, hands. So he still wanted to use them. So uh, he was packing them up and moving them out. This camp, for whatever reason did not get evacuated, which is another part of the curiosity of this camp as a whole. Like, why was it there in the first place? Um, so there was a little pocket of people, and we did find out it was maybe 12 to 15 prisoners, and that's not very many, right? That's a very small, small camp. And this little pocket sat just outside of Auschwitz, and Auschwitz had been evacuated. Uh, uh, Monowitz, which was at at one time it was part of uh, Auschwitz and then became its own entity. Jaworzno and a few other camps that were really close to it had already been evacuated and these people were still sitting there in the middle of nowhere. And the Soviets were coming down the road. And the Germans, uh, as we understand, when they realized the Soviets were so close, the guards just left. They just disappeared in the night 
They were gone and the prisoners were left standing around, you know, what next, right? You understand that even though they were captive, they would have had to rely on their guards for to keep them fed if they were being fed at all, right? Clothing, if they had clothing and so on, right? Their only obscure survival was at the hands of the guards. So now the guards are gone. So now what are they going to do? So I guess most of them decided they were just going to stay there. Uh, my grandfather said it was time to leave and he just walked away. And uh, he ended up in, in one village, Bogachaw, and we talked about that near the end of the second session. So we're not going to go over that one, but just to place it, that's where we had him last before we, we ended the second podcast. And a lot of things have happened since then, because I don't know how many sessions I've had since, uh, since June, but it's, it's been quite a few. So we're going to be going back and forth a bit because some information that comes up in, in, in like sessions now was pertinent to stuff that I was maybe working on the first few months that I started this project. So as you will see throughout this podcast. So I, I got some notes here so I don't lose track of myself too badly. But this, this unnamed camp that he was in, that's always been a huge curiosity to me. If you Google search or do any other kind of search on concentration camps, work camps, labor camps, whatever, there's all kinds of names to these places, you'll get a huge list. They're the main camps. Some of the sites will break down uh, satellite camps of the main camps. And this goes on and on. And there's literally thousands of these. Thousands of these. And some of them are nothing more than farms. It could be factories, chemical plants, uh, labor camps, extermination camps. They didn't do any work. They just killed them. Uh, and so on. So there are many purposes, right? Well, what was the purpose of this camp that he ended up in? Which turned out to be a very small camp. Probably the biggest curiosity. Yeah, yeah, Sorry, ahead. I find this really interesting because, I mean, I've it's been a, quite a number of years since I've come out of the school system, but I've never heard someone describe one of the camps as a purpose. Um, and you're not taught that. You're taught about the, the camps where they just killed people. But you're talking about putting them to work. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. slave labor so I at first I was very confused but now now that you're saying it this way I love the way that you choose your language uh, because I think this is hugely educational for people who don't who really just are only looking in textbooks well, it's, yeah it's one of the major flaws in, of how history is taught in that second world war only had to do with the Jews and it was all about killing the Jews and that was the end of it, it was, couldn't be further from the truth certainly was a huge part of their agenda um, but they didn't just, you know, some of them, they, they, they chose to, to kill in various ways because they didn't find them useful, but others, they first worked and either they died working or when they were too sick to work anymore, then they took them off and, and gassed them or did whatever they did. So there was a purpose. They needed all this infrastructure built for their war effort. Well, who was going to do that? They couldn't use their armies because they were busy fighting. So they'd bring in outside labor. So they literally just stole these people, took everything that, that, that they owned, uh, sold it off for their own purpose and, and a little extra cash, and put these people to work. So they've got them dotted all over, the, all over Europe, all kinds of camps. Yeah, like I say, some of them are just farms. I say just farms, but, you know, it's, they had to grow food, you know. Maybe there was some livestock. There wasn't a lot of livestock going around then, but there was some. So they had a purpose, right? In this immediate area... You had Monowitz, which was, it was a synthetic rubber factory. 
Uh, you think of all the different things you could use rubber for, right? There was lots of lots of things you needed rubber for. So uh, rubber was in short supply. So the, they came up, the chemists and all that came up with a way to make it synthetically. So they wouldn't have to go looking for the natural rubber, which wouldn't be found anywhere around there. So they built this massive factory just outside of Auschwitz. Um, that was just down the road. And I'm sure if there were no trees in the way, he probably could have seen it from his camp because it was not that far. And in the other direction, I believe it would be to the west, there was a shoe factory, a uh, Beta Shoe Factory, you know, B-A-T-A, still around today. They had a shoe factory there. And there were some ponds that they used it for water source that, that, that the factory had, you know, the prisoners would go around and they had to keep the ponds clear of weeds and whatnot. So they'd have them rummaging around in the water in the freezing cold temperatures, cleaning, cleaning the, uh, the pools out, right? Little jobs like that, but I'm sure they weren't that great when you weren't fed, you were always tired, and it was freezing cold, and you had no clothing. That's not a fun job. There was also a coal mine in the in very very close to where he was. So with all these different camps of different uh, types in the in in that area, my thought was maybe this is just a small pocket of labor that they would farm out to different factories or whatever for use, right? But then that didn't really start making any sense either because they had their own camp facilities and their own barracks for the prisoners and compounds and whatnot. So why would they have this one isolated off on its own? Very small camp, really seemingly doing nothing. And in fact, that's what he told us he was doing was nothing. Just standing around in the, in, in the open air, uh, freezing. So all these things make it a really big curiosity as to why this thing existed. So... Um, Nothing in the books. Can't find anything in the books. And of course, you don't have a name, so you can't trace a camp name if you don't have one. And he wasn't giving us one because I'm not sure it had a name. All this down the road here, this will all make, start to make sense here in, you know, maybe another half hour. Anyways, my curiosity always gets the better of me. So I decided I write to the researchers at Auschwitz, at the actual museum in Auschwitz. They have a team of researchers that... They're still looking into all these stories and whatnot because there's probably tons of them. And they wrote back and said, we don't know anything about that spot. It's actually out of our area of interest. They have a line they've drawn on the map and said, we don't care about anything on the outside. There's too much here, right? And it just fell outside of that area. So they had nothing to provide me. Um, they put me on to the museum. What do we call it here? United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington. So I did the same with that museum and they pretty much gave me the same answer we don't know what you're talking about we've never heard of that uh that sort of thing and that those kind of answers kind of piqued my interest well how is that possible you didn't hear about this right uh that kind of leaves it it's like, it's like a big jewel hanging there to grab right there's nothing there we would better figure out why there's nothing there right so digging on their website i came across photographs and it had a bunch of aerial photos that were taken in 1944 and early 45 of Monowitz specifically, but just off to the side, but still in the frame, was that very spot that he said his camp was on. So as soon as I saw that, I said, well, I need a better picture because what they published on the internet, when you zoom in, it just pixelates and looks like crap, right? You can't see anything. So they sent back digital photographs that were higher quality 
with permission forms for me to sign. So, you know, I'll, I promise to use it for my own personal use and not sell it in a book or whatever, right? Yada, yada. Just a free podcast. <laughs> yeah. So, so I did all that and I uh, managed to zoom in a little bit more. Um, but you have to understand 1944, they, they didn't have the same technology. So their aerial, uh, photography wasn't to the same quality as you would get now, right? What the best I could get. So when I zoomed in, in that camp, you could see there wasn't much to see in that spot where that camp was. There were certainly no big buildings. You couldn't see any compound that was visible, or anything like that. Just an obscure little field surrounded by trees and on one road in. Not a big thing. But I did notice a faint circular mark in the field. And I, I'm not talking a crop circle here <laughs> like that. But uh, it was like a path is what it looked like to me. It couldn't be a building. Nobody builds a building like that. It wasn't anything that would reflect light back to the camera. Because that's just not how it worked. The photo was taken in the, in the winter, so there was a little bit of snow on the ground. And my thought was, is that looked like a path in the field in a, in a circular kind of shape? So, okay, that's fine. But then I recalled the Google Earth satellite photo that I had downloaded quite a while before. And I, I think that one's actually already been uh, scanned. And the shape, there's a shape in that field that path is visible on the Google Earth photo as it was on the aerial photo taken in 44, which is quite astonishing. Why would you see that same pattern in the field? Well, the Google Earth photo shows a light-colored grass in a, in a path, a circular path that goes through the field. Well, if you do anything with agriculture, you know when you disturb the ground, the ground is disturbed forever. It will always leave some kind of a mark for somebody to see, depending on what technology you're using to see it. There's a lot of archaeology now that's done with satellites. They take a look at the earth and they can see impressions in the ground. You know, we're looking for a building. We've looked everywhere. And, oh, look at that. From, from the sky, we can see an impression on the ground we never saw before. And they dig and, voila, there's their building, right? That sort of thing. So my thought was, is something made this path? in the field. It was visible in 1944 and it's still visible now. But I couldn't figure it out. So one day, this is kind of one of those bizarre moments, right? I'm watching TV trying to sort this thing out. The Great Escape was on. The movie The Great Escape. You know, Steve McQueen and blah blah. Famous movie. And in one scene, there was all kinds of prisoners Okay, if you don't know, maybe I should segue no, into that. Do we look like we know? Here, okay? no, we don't know, and I don't remember. <laughs> but Jim, is this like an energetic footprint? Uh, yes. Is that what it is? Essentially, I will explain. The Great Escape movie uh, during the Second World War, prisoners of war, mostly airmen, were placed in, in a prisoner of war camp, and and not actually that camp was actually not far from this place. Like, I mean, it wasn't just down a road, but it was not a day's drive. Anyways, in one scene, the prisoners were out for their morning exercise, and they were all like three, four abreast, and they were walking around the inner part of the compound. Around and around and around. And I just looked at that and got that feeling that, are you kidding me? Right? If this was a compound of some kind, they could have done the same thing. So it literally is 
footprints. Yeah. Oh, yes. They're wearing the land with humans actually walking yeah. a path. Yeah, they're compacting the earth, walking around and around to get their morning exercise, maybe to get warm because they probably weren't warm. And they had nothing to do, right? So you want to do something, so you walk around, right? So that was my thought. Is it possible that that's what happened here? And it was actually visible on the aerial photo and still signs of it today, still there. So that was kind of a, okay, maybe we are on the right track. Maybe this really is the spot, you know, because some doubt had to come in when you, you get, you know, nothing here, nothing there, right? It had to be something, right? So I put that aside. And, uh, yeah, it gets almost, it, it gets a little bit better. I ended up coming across, uh, again, uh, on the internet, a group called the Auschwitz Study Group. And this is a, a civilian organization started by one guy that wanted to learn the whole history of Auschwitz and the effects on the area. So they'd go and they'd do things that hadn't been studied by maybe the museum or hadn't been studied to the extent that he would have liked. I just casually emailed the man and said, look, here's a story. I think my grandfather might have been right here, right? And I gave him the coordinates and sent him the maps and all that sort of thing. And I believe there was a camp there. What do you know about this, if anything? And he came back very quickly and said, actually, we are going to be in Poland in two weeks and we will go to that spot and we will check it out for you. So I'm like, hey, cool, right on. So he did that. He went, he took a bunch of photos, uh, nice photos. So I have some current photographs and he interviewed people that lived in the area and people that were actually on that farm property now. Um, but he never got any positive feedback. As a matter of fact, one of the people said, there's no way there was anything here. Now that kind of set me back a little bit, kind of like, really, I was, I was really hoping that somebody would say, yeah, you know, there was activity here. We maybe don't know what it was, but there was something going on here. So it was kind of like, oh, another door slamming shut. And I'm like, hmm, okay. But, you know, it wasn't enough to make me stop. You know, I still believed that he was on that spot. The descriptions we got, uh, uh, from yourself, actually, with a remote viewing, uh, it was just too accurate. There were just too many positives there for this to be nothing. So 12 to 15 people, you could hide that in a bus, right? So there's still potential for something to be there. So, uh, yeah, shot down by that little, little bit, but that actually set me on, on a bit of a different path. Yeah, we talked about, uh, the people that were in this camp to try to figure out a better reason for the camp being there. Like I said, what's the purpose? Nobody was doing any work. So you got a camp, 12 to 15 people, nobody's doing any work. We established that some were in uniforms, like the, you know, the, the stereotypical prisoner uniform, and some were in civilian attire, as my grandfather happened to be in civilian attire. Then, I don't know if you're going to remember this one, I asked if there was any specific type of person there. And by type, I mean, like, were they, you know, were they just farmers? Were they all resistance members? Were there any military people as prisoners, right? And you started writing nuns down. And we got off on this wild, crazy tangent about, you know, religious sisters, right? I was going to ask how it was written down on the page, but I don't... It was written nuns, like N-U-N-S. Oh. And uh, I don't, 
This was not the twist I was expecting. No, <laughs> well, no, me neither, right? None, really. So, so now we're going all religious here. You know, I'll bet you I spent a solid two weeks researching, and probably at least two weeks researching, you know, the Catholic Church and whatnot, and their involvement in the Second World War to try and establish a location of events. And uh, it took me everywhere. There was a lot of involvement, both good and bad, but nothing directed me to that location, any specific involvement. And then, you know, you sit back and you go, this obscure little farm, why would there be nuns? Sure, nuns were held captive, right? As many priests were, they were put into camps. Uh, but I do believe uh, there were some specific camps they were put in and it was only them right? There wasn't anybody else there. Okay, they were captive, but I didn't believe that any of these people were nuns. It just wasn't working for me. It did, it did not make any sense. But remember nuns, because that's, that's going to be coming up. When I started researching, from, from that point, I started researching different types of prisoners. Now, certainly there were the Jewish prisoners, and they were identified accordingly, but there were also Jehovah's Witnesses, political prisoners uh, of many different varieties, resistance members, military people, Russians, they held separately as there was a separate category for them. Uh, they really hated them. Um, but they all had different designations and, and markings on their uniforms or their bodies. So they could be readily identified and separated and, and whatever, right? Nothing came up about religious people getting a special designation or anything like that so i'm like okay whatever so that was you know i got to learn a little bit a little bit more about that within the political prisoners there was about five or six categories but one come out and it was spelt out knocked und knocked und nobel so just spell that out n-a-c-h-t separate word u-n-d new word n-e-b-e-l nuns nuns the S yes of obviously being plural. And when I saw that, it was kind of like, are you freaking kidding me, right? How many weeks spent looking for sisters when maybe <laughs> this had something to do with what I was looking for, right? Yeah, knocked in the bell. So, of course, now I'm off on what, are, what does this mean? What, what is this? So, turns out, knocked in the bell was a decree that came out from Hitler, probably not written by him, just, you know, he endorsed it. Um to try and deal with the political prisoners, specifically the resistance members that were causing all kinds of grief to his army in the occupied countries. Essentially, they weren't being killed fast enough is what it came down to. It was, it was a known fact that you're a resistance member and you caused crap. They just, you were hauled off and shot. Uh, but that wasn't working out well. They weren't being able to get that done fast enough because they first put them through a court system and there weren't enough judges, weren't enough courts. It's just taking a whole lot of time and a whole lot of resources, right? And so all these people were backed up in prisons, waiting to be shot, essentially, like a summary trial. You're guilty. We're just going to go through the effort to show that you're guilty. And, you know, the result's going to be the same in the end, right? So to sort this out, he figured we have to do this more expediently. But more than that we have to have a system that possibly deters other people from wanting to engage in that kind of activity, right? So this decree, essentially it declared that if you committed these acts, 
then you would be arrested under the Noctu Nobel decree, which I should say uh, translates to night and fog. Um, you would be arrested under this decree, and if you could not be put in court and be sentenced and executed within eight days, then you would have to be shipped off to Germany and dealt with some other by some other means. So get, get them out of the country. The other part of that is that nobody is to know where they are going. The families are never to be notified. You are not allowed to have any mail correspondence, not allowed to have any Red Cross care parcels. Uh, your records would be very obscure. They might have your name down and it might have something written beside it. But there'd be no identifiers for history to show that this person was arrested under this decree and sent to this place, and this is what happened to him. Essentially, they are to vanish into the night and fog, hence the name of the decree. A, a very disgusting prospect, really. You know, if you're going to be shot, you're shot fine, but for family and whatnot to not know whatever happened to you, uh, that, that's pretty cruel. And actually, that was dealt with at the Nuremberg trials as well as one of the most heinous crimes. It is a very interesting decree. But when you apply that to this whole story of this camp, it started to make sense, right? Why, don't, why didn't he know where he was going? Why don't we know where he went? Why are there no records? Uh, and still to today, why are there no records that have been at least brought forward, right? A whole lot of nobody knows. Even the neighbors, the people that lived in the area would not know what was going on there in that camp. Now, these prisoners were to be totally isolated. There were Nocton uh, Nobel, so we'll call them non-prisoners. They were in many of the prominent concentration camps as well. They were also in Buchenwald, Auschwitz, Dachau. There were a lot of them in Dachau. Hinsert and Natzweiler in France were the two biggest uh, camps that were specifically designed for this category of prisoner. So there were a lot of these people. And no records to show whatever happened to them, right? Unless they lived through it somehow. Now, they were separated, so they couldn't communicate. And one of our sessions, one of our very first sessions, actually, we were trying to establish where he went when he got arrested. And he couldn't tell us. He knew he was on a train. Where were you going? I have no idea. Well, didn't you see anything from the train? Nope. Didn't see anything. Didn't even know whether it was night or day half the time. Couldn't communicate with the other prisoners, but that was a language barrier. But the train stopped and he got off. Well, what'd you see? Well, there was nothing identifiable to place him. Jim, I just want to pause and say thank you for so many reasons. Uh, but for what, the, for what you've done for my mom, and consequently for me, I know indirectly, where that could have been the most frustrating first session where you could have walked away and said she's terrible. <laughs> And I look at your file folder and binder of notes that you consistently bring and the excitement that you have in this, what you're calling an adventure that you're on, connecting to your grandfather, and the kind of faith that you've had in her and in those gifts. And I, I sit here and I watch her watch you talking, uh, and this is a really big gift for, for me to see and I know for her to experience. So I just wanted to say thank you. It's, yeah, oh, very welcome. It's it, it's it's absolutely incredible, actually. Like, and where am I going to get the information? 
right? Uh, it, it's not there. Or I would have already found it. I think whenever she doubts herself in the house, I'm just going to yell nuns at her. <laughs> yeah, nuns, yeah, for sure. Uh, nuns actually turns out to be, uh, it's not funny, but it turns out to be kind of a funny aspect of this story later on. Uh, well, yeah, not funny, but crazy accurate. Oh, yeah. And it, for your grandfather to just, again, be be totally in his character and, and giving riddles. Oh, yeah. The, and then, you know, for her to be consistent with that, it just, it, it's wonderful. Yeah, the, the riddles. Like, this, this whole thing is kind of like, for those that have watched the movie, uh, what is it called? National Treasure, right? It's all riddles and, and whatnot and kind of like a, a grown-up game of find the buried treasure sort of thing, right? You know? One clue leads to the next one to the next one, but you have to figure out the clues because the clues aren't even obvious. Yeah, nuns was not obvious at first. It was, it was like I say, it was like a, it was a wild shot off in the wrong direction. So, Is it okay to interrupt you? For absolutely. I want to speak to two things. Um, as Kelly said, the gratitude that I feel um, when when you have stuck with this to affirm this. But also, Jim, when I think back when you're telling the story to the moments when I was in your grandfather's body going through that with him, when he was scared and didn't know where he was, and you were asking wonderful questions as a client, and I am journeying out into his body in a different time in history and trying to describe for you what he saw. Because as a remote viewer... I am seeing it, but I am also gifted to feel it and to be able to be in his body as a resistance fighter in the Second World War, look out and you would say, what does he see? And I would say, well, and I would try and look out and I would say, well, I'm moving, I'm on a train, and where? And I would have to try and look out and see, but to be able to be in your grandfather's body and in his eyes and look out at a place that you think is your home or and that you're fighting for and not know where you're going not know how to communicate as you said with your own family not to know anything that's happening to you or will happen to you what what all of the emotions that you can feel going through that but then also as a medium that while he has to accurately describe that to me to give you that properly so that months down the road you could understand what the word nun meant um, that there was also a side of your grandfather that loved you and wanted you to know the story he wanted to be able to share it with somebody um, and who does he pick but a, an investigator his own grandson who's willing to spend over a year researching the years and the times of his life that he felt the most isolated from his family and here you are sitting there being present enough and patient enough and wanting to feel connected enough. Definitely, yes. Thanks. It, and all those things, like you say, what you feel, what you saw, what you smelled, those are all, they all come down to clues as well. I remember smelling the rubber. Yeah, the rubber, yes. It, 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 I remember just vaguely, as you're talking, I've got vague memories of the session and maybe just what he allows me to remember. Um, 
but I remember you asking certain things and having to see it or smell it or taste it. And it's something else that Kelly and I do is that we use all of the senses. So it was like, oh, Jim, I could smell rubber. And so then for you to be able to research and find out that there is a tire factory, you're able to come back and say, you smelt rubber. I found it. It's, it's, it's a tire factory. And for me to be able to go, wow, I smelt it? it like, so that it's real. So how can anybody really truly explain that I can smell it and that that's his way of giving you another piece of information? Right. Oh, yeah. It, and uh, in a sense, well, for me, for me, this is fun. Like to do it this way is fun. It, uh, um, it fully engages you while you're doing this as opposed to just reading a silly little book, right? It gives you the whole feel for, the, for what, what's going on. And that's really what I was looking for. So, uh, well, you, you're feeling it, and I guess I'm also saying that he's passed over, he's dead, but he's feeling it too, and that I get to feel that. There, there's a third person here that gets to feel it, and that while your grandfather felt isolated, he now has Karen Sarlo feeling it and seeing him on that train. He now knows that someone else knows how he felt when he couldn't recognize anything. And he now knows that you know, and that you might know what that might feel like. Yeah, well, absolutely. Uh, to say, you know, what do you think of when, when you read a, s a sentence in, in, in one of these books or on the internet, and it says, yeah, the, the people were put on a train and they were taken to Auschwitz, right? That, that's really all you get. Right, that's all that's there in most of the most of the publications, right? But that train ride was hell, and an awful lot of people didn't survive that train ride because of the uh, uh, conditions on that train. You know, they literally crammed into cattle cars for the most part, and there were no no windows. If there was a window, it was very small. You know, maybe a crack in the board or something. If you got lucky, you might be able to breathe the air through there, as opposed to the awful air that would have been inside this car. Uh, way overcrowded. It would have been a lot of confusion, a lot of anxiety, a whole lot of crap, uh, literally. Yeah, it, it, it adds that much to the story, you know, rather than just, I was on a train. <laughs> it wasn't a passenger train. <laughs> I wasn't getting my, my meal and my drink, you know. Yeah, this is, this is a big part of the story. Uh, as we know now, even bigger, uh, dealing with this nun's issue say he didn't know, have a clue where he was and you know I believe that was probably the first or second session and that's probably going back two years now that we got that information and it was totally like what am I going to do with that somebody can't tell me where they were they didn't see anything that's kind of hard to believe uh, at the time I was on a train I didn't see anything trucking along somewhere didn't even know what direction he was heading how many days it had taken right the sun gone up the sun gone down no idea Doors open, thrown out of the train, and you are somewhere. But again, my understanding is all efforts were made to uh, disguise where these people were going. Road signs, there would have been road signs everywhere. Every train station would have gone through, would have had a sign on it. Well, apparently they were covered or taken down or whatever. And two reasons for that. One, you didn't want these people to know where they were going. And two, enemy infiltrators or advancing armies... You know, you give them a road sign, well, it's that much easier for them to move along and find where they want to go, right? So you take all that crap down. We do the same thing, just not for the same reasons. 
that kind of shed a whole lot more light on those first couple of sessions. And so two years, that's a long time to be hanging on to one of these clues and finally being able to plug it in somewhere. And that's the way this has always gone, which is why these papers, these doodles, mean a ton. Even after the first year, you look at it and you go, what a pile of gibberish, right? Like, what the hell is that supposed to mean? Well, it turns out just about everything on every piece of paper has turned out to mean something. Really? Yeah, it's just how you are going to be able to plug it in. But this actually ties right into, actually, this was a really recent session, maybe three sessions ago. Uh, do you remember when you did your nails? Oh, yes, Kelly doesn't know anything about that part. Oh, my God. Well, she ha- she's going to know a tiny bit, but she yeah. won't know how it played yeah. in. We, yeah, you go ahead. We really should have photographed those those fingernails. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we should have photographed those fingernails. We started a session, and we, we were into it. And, and in the middle of the session, you decided to show me your fingernails, right? And, and, and some of them were okay. I, I believe they were a burgundy color as, as a base. I'm going to describe them. Yeah, go I ahead. Paid, Kelly was out one night, and I painted my fingernails red. I was on Pinterest. And I wanted to see if I could do something Christmassy. So they're red, and then I you were supposed to take, like, sparkles or something and do them differently. So one nail should be full of sparkles, one should be solid red, one should have little sparkles at the top, one should have sparkles at the bottom, one might have, and I actually did this, uh, they didn't show it on Pinterest, but I did, on one nail, right in the middle of the nail, I took the sparkles. (laughs) And I made like X's and different... um, like a squiggly or something, but I did things in the middle of the nail that made no sense. And Kelly came home, took one look at my hands and went, what the hell did you do? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> so you go on, Jim. Yeah, so we were, well, we were a fair ways into our session and you decided to show me your fingernails and I, didn't, I really didn't know what to say. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, they were certainly different. Uh but when I got home, <laughs> when I got home, uh, I uh, I knew about this photograph that, that you're looking at right now. And I do have it scanned on a memory stick to be used later. But uh, your fingernails reminded me of that photograph. But I brought it up in the session going, you know what? That's exactly the way they marked, or not exactly, but that style of marking is what they did with the nun prisoners. Um. They, they specifically they would put ends on their uniform somewhere, sometimes some lines as well, and then there were dots, whatever markings they could do to readily identify them as non prisoners. Um, excuse me, because they wanted to be able to, at a glance, tell that these people had to be treated a different way, and it had to be segregated in case one of the you know the sheep got out of line, right? Um, and and that's really what those fingernails reminded of me right away and when I saw that picture I'm going yeah that's it why you had to make your fingers look like that <laughs> I'm glad they served some kind of purpose <laughs> Jim I live my life like that though and I think like when people hear and as you've come in and out of sessions and you, you know, I know you are start like are getting it more but like I put my hair up in a bun because all like for example you're sitting here right now my hair's in a bun today every single one of my female clients came with a bun today <laughs> like, and all my clients wore black and you're sitting here looking at me all in black. 
So lots of the things that I that I do in my life have things to do or are, are correlated all the time to a client or to the person who's passed over. Because I'll go by Turkish delight, because my three o'clock appointments, mom, a Turkish delight. That happens to me all the time. So doing my nails like that is is one of the another way of like living the affirmations instead of just talking them. Right. <laughs> the nail story. All right. We're going into uh, it, it's all kind of connects together, but uh, it's very difficult to do this chronologically because while some of the information can come to me in somewhat chronological form, I don't figure it out in that order. Right. I'll get what I get when I get it. And, uh, when I get enough of it, I get to put it together. So fr from this nail story, uh, the nuns and whatnot, it all ties into again, oh, I'm going to say it was the very first session that I came to see you about. And it was about that train ride. And what did you see was one of the questions I'd asked you. And after a little bit of you know, back and forth, you said, I see the capital D. I see a D, you know, as in A, B, C, D. And we're like, D, well, that's nice. Nothing else? No, only a D. And I sat on that since that first day, two years ago, tried to use it everywhere I could. Is this where the D comes in? No, nope, didn't make sense. Is this where the D comes in? Doesn't make sense either, right? So... Um, it was at the end of the last podcast and I was walking out the door and you said, I think I mentioned the D actually as I'm walking out the door and you mentioned, uh, uh, a circular gray stone building and that's where it left it. Right. So, okay. Okay. Do I put the D with the gray circular stone building? It seemed to make sense. I spent a lot of time when I wasn't working on another clue trying to find a circular gray stone building that had something to do with a D, like maybe a city name or, or the name of the building or something, right? Couldn't find anything. Uh, there's just too many directions to go with that, you know, especially in Europe. So that, that Can I ask you a yeah. question? Is this the one where I said you have to go in the building to go out of the building? That is the one. Really? Yes, that is the one. That wasn't the session, that wasn't the time, but that was, okay. we kept plugging away at this, this D and he kept feeding us little tidbits, little tidbits here and there, right? At one point I actually thought it was uh, important to his trip home, not to his uh, trip to this camp, but maybe his trip home from the camp, but I couldn't make that work. So then I started figuring, well, this has to be on his trip out there. It just had to be. And then I had the NN, the nuns. I added that with the D and this is just something very recent that I did like within two weeks I came on this clue I started putting the two together where did where did they concentrate these NN prisoners these non-prisoners and this D and this gray circular stone building and yada yada I asked a few key questions in one of my last sessions and that's when you brought out the you could smell burning rubber oh right you could smell this rubber and I'm going whoa okay First, I think you said burning sugar or something, and then you changed it to rubber. 
So I'm going, okay, there had to be like another one of these tire plants somewhere near this D, right? So I actually at one point gone and printed off, it's in my file here, right? Stacks, stacks of paper with the name of every German town and every German city that started with D, as well as every Polish town that started with D. Because at one time, depending on where you were, the one country was the other. You have to factor all that crap into this type of investigation. Plus, the names of the places changed. After the war, a lot of these towns changed names uh, for various reasons. You know, there's a lot of things to factor in here, a lot of Ds to look for. Um, but you had gone and you started to try and pronounce the name of the town for me. That, that was the final clue I needed. Turns out it's the city of Deutz. Now, the reason it wasn't immediately obvious because that city had been amalgamated into the current city of Cologne, Germany. Uh, I, th I think they pronounce it Köln or something like that. So I'm not German, so I'm going to go with the English catch-all. One of the other clues that came out as well was that the city had been renamed. So it all fit together. Now within the city of Deutz is an old rubber factory. At least during the war there was. And it got the hell bombed out of it. So I don't even know if it still exists. But at that time there was one there. So you most certainly would have smelled rubber. Then there were other clues, like there was something educational and religious, theater style. There was the windows. Uh, it was in a city and it was renamed. So I tried to plug all those into that, uh, the city of Deutz, to see whether I could come up with anything that was, you know, fairly obvious and didn't dig too much to kind of create the answer I was looking for, right? Well, educational, religious, most definitely. Right across the bridge, well, I should first explain that the city is divided by the Rhine River. And there's a big bridge that goes across. And immediately on the other side of the bridge is a huge cathedral. If you want to call that religious, yeah. Educational. Within the, the city of Deutz, there's also uh, educational components. But as well, there's a train station. The main component of the train station was a circular gray stone structure. So I, I got pictures of that as well on the memory stick. Well... There were windows in this thing that were exactly the way you described it. Because at one point in the session, you were standing inside this building. So you were able to describe to me what it looked like from the inside out. So that made a lot of... Uh, that, that was uh, actually a really good clue. But then you said you had to go inside this building to be outside. So, uh, you know, a little riddle, right? So what can you do that with? Maybe a stadium, maybe uh, an outdoor theater or, or a theater of some kind. Or train station, right? You're not getting to the platforms on the outside without first going through the front door. So it all fit together. Now, outside, immediately outside of this train station, was a big hall. At the time, it was referred to as the Rheinhallen. Now, this structure was a very important structure. Uh, it housed a garrison of the SS. It also housed uh, uh, a satellite camp of Camp Buchenwald. So there were a lot of prisoners already hanging around there to, doing various jobs. It was an area where they corralled, accommodated, and eventually shipped out many Jews from that area, and gypsies and other people that they were collecting at the time. And as well, they auctioned off all their properties there to German people. Hello, you're German, and maybe you need some stuff. Come to our auction sale and buy some of this stuff that we took from the Jews. All this sort of thing was going on in this structure. Um, as well, there was a Gestapo camp just outside of that, that was, uh, is actually today where there's a theater, an outdoor theater. And the Gestapo would hold these people there before they take them 
into the city of Cologne across the river to, to a house that's a very famous house. It's the LD house, E-L-D-E. And essentially that was a, a horrible place to have to go. That's where they uh, interrogated you. You know, they put you in very small cells. They beat you. They tortured you. They did whatever they did to you there, right? And a lot of people ended up going through there. But I'm also led to believe that's also where they made selections, whether you were going to be useful and live or whether you were going somewhere else to die. And uh, that'll be another focus of another one of our sessions because selection is an open part of this investigation that I have not resolved yet. Well, to put that in place, why... Why did he live as a resistance member and end up in that camp? He was obviously selected or he would have been sent somewhere else and, and not be permitted to live. So we have to get into the details of that selection. And that may have happened in this location. Yeah, so Deutz, a uh, very interesting city. Quite a beautiful city. I'm going to enjoy visiting that one of these days. Deutz is, uh, turns into a very interesting clue. The references to movie, theater, and family were on your notes. I'm actually going to show you your notes. Yeah, I'm just looking at the file folder of all my handwriting. Oh, that's, yeah, that's only a little bit. <laughs> I'm going to see down here, right? Inside, outside, doctor, family, movie, train station, doors. Okay. Journey. Yeah. And then, now, pay attention to this. Roslyn. Yeah. Spelt two different ways, plus a third R to suggest that maybe there was a third. Okay. Okay. Now, we both kind of went cross-eyed when you started writing that one. So you got Rosalind, R-O-S-A-L-I-N-D, and Rosalind, R-O-S-A-L-U-N-D-E, but the U has two dots over it. Right. Right, that's very common. And then the third R with nothing behind it. So I took that as a starting point. Like, I should be able to find something on this name, right? Yeah, I found something, all right. Uh, this went somewhere I never thought it would go. Now, keep in mind, we also talked about movie, theater, etc., turns out that I was trying to figure out the third R. Well, Roslyn with the U and the two dots. If you pull up the German alphabet, the U with the two dots is also a Y. So you got Roslyn with an I, Roslyn with a U with the two dots, and Roslyn with the Y. The third R. This could be the third R. That's, I started out with this. I got no proof at this point, right? So when I started researching that... It led me, would you believe, to Shakespeare, which is an area I never thought I'd be going. I didn't like Shakespeare. Right? Everybody had to read his stuff in school, and it was like, are you kidding me? Right? Well, there, there's the German alphabet. You'll see the yeah. Yeah. U with the two dots is also yeah. a Y. Yeah. Okay. So that's fine. Now, one very specific search, I put all three of those names in and hit enter. And I got this document which has two of them right in there, which essentially is three. Okay? It oh, my God. It talks about the comparison of the Roslins in the form of plays. Okay? Now, Thomas Lodge wrote a play way, 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 way back when, Shakespeare's days, or actually, I think, before his days, and his key actor was Roslin. And that was with, I don't get this right, was with the Y. So, essentially, the U with the two dots. Uh, key female actor. Uh, Shakespeare wrote a play based on this, and his key female actor was Rosalind with an I. And the story during that play, essentially, and I didn't read the whole thing. I got the cheater notes. It's just like school. Oh, you know it. Right? Anything to pass. 
Roslyn, uh, female, she she wasn't she wasn't liking the family breakdown, the way that the rules were being laid out, and yada yada within the the home. So she was essentially sent away, and she went away to live in a forest somewhere. Sounds pretty Robin Hoodish, but she ended up in a forest with all kinds of other people that were like minded, right? They also didn't like those rules and regulations and whatnot. So they're hanging out in this forest and had a merry old time, just like you know Sherlock. And all that stuff, right? So anyways, that's the essence of that play. So I sat down and says, what, what does that have to do with anything? Then I stumbled on a third play. And it is called Edelweiss, Edelweiss Pirates. And it is based in Cologne in 1943. So close time frame, same location. And it's about a group of youth that don't want to join the Hitler Youth. Back in the time you were German and you were you were young, certain age, you had to join this group. You know, kind of like get you ready for the military, right? Nazify you. They didn't want to do that. They wanted music, they wanted books, and they just wanted to be themselves. So they were kind of rebelling. And they go around, they actually attacked Hitler Youth patrols and whatnot, and just did their own thing, a merry gold time, much like Rosalind did out in the forest. So I'm kind of like, okay, it's getting a little bit stronger here, right? So uh, I kind of figure that is where he was trying to lead me with this Roslyn thing. He, he's, he's locating me more firmly in, in, in the city of Deutz, right, with this train station. Right now, that's as far as I've gotten with that little piece. But I think, I think I'm on the right track with that one. It, it was kind of interesting. I never thought I'd be with Shakespeare, though. That was a little bit... I thought it was corny at first. I'm going, no way am I going down Shakespeare's road. So now... As well, I mentioned the LD house. These kids were eventually, they were causing, they were quite a nuisance. Eventually, a bunch of them were caught and shipped off to this house across the river. And uh, they hung many of them, actually. Uh, some of them, they just slapped around and said, y you know, you fool, don't do this again. Others, they took to concentration camps. Um, so it was a little bit more serious than just being a little bit of a, a rebellious organization. And they had groups of these kids in different cities with different names for their little groups. But you can actually watch that play. It's, it's available. I think there's actually a DVD for it, so which is kind of interesting. Maybe someday. But all that took place in that same spot. So we, we, we've targeted it pretty good. Yeah, and again, I mentioned selections. This is where the Deutz train station was a key hub for not only uh, east-west, but north-south trains during the war. They kind of all met there. So we all had to gotten off the train, got corralled somewhere, and decisions made, where are you going to go? Where are we going to send these people? Well, you're going south, stand over there. You're going north, stand over there. East, you're going over here or whatever, right? I believe the selections were done there. A lot of the selections, in his case, not everybody's case, a lot of them were done at the concentration camps. And they probably had a second selection at the camps anyways. We don't care what these guys thought of you. We think you're useless. You're going left, right? Uh, that sort of deal. Very, very cruel, very um, dehumanizing point in history. And that was essentially their goal. Dehumanize, right? We're going to take away your name. We're going to shave your hair. And if anybody that's gone the military route, it is really kind of weird, right? I went in with a full head of hair, like extra long, because I knew I was getting a free haircut. And uh, when they took your hair away, it was like they took a piece of you away. A piece of your identity. And this would have been very much the same thing. 
take your lovely hair and we're going to shave you down to nothing. We're going to take your clothes, the clothes that you like, and we're going to, we're going to put you in this ugly uniform. Then we're going to put a label on you, right? One that you're probably not going to like. Then we're going to take all your personal belongings. And then if you're a couple, we're going to split you up. If there's kids involved, then they're getting split as well. And basically you're just beat down into a nobody, a nothing, a piece of dirt. And from there, they did what they did with you. Yeah, it's kind of kind of a sick piece of history, but it's a big piece of this story and 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 millions of people's stories at, the, at this time in history. And uh, very well, it fits. It might fit too, Jim. And this might be really stepping out there a little bit, but people might be feeling the same way. It it might not be that it's comparable, but they might be feeling the same way with what is going on maybe in their world now and what's happening politically where we are now. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, definitely. You can make some associations, uh, close associations with that. But, yeah, it doesn't take too much to beat somebody down. You don't even have to know you're doing it. But they very much knew they were doing it. And some of them actually enjoyed it. So, I mean, that was very quickly going through through uh, Deutz. Um, but, again, Deutz... That, that was a two-year two year investigation to come up with that city's name. So when you look back, and I, and I don't really don't know how any of your other clients get their information from you. I don't know whether they come in riddles, different clues, and what they go on and do with them. But from my experience over the last two years, what you're, what you're giving them may not at the time be, be, seem important to them. Right, it might not fit their story, but I think a lot of people also come with predetermined responses and answers, right? And they're looking for you to to validate it, right? To prove them correct, as opposed to the other way around. So if you get something that says this is what happened, and you flat out don't believe it, you know, you might want to take a step back. You don't have the answer, and I don't mean you. I mean they don't have the answer, right? And they're just choosing not to believe what you're giving them but I think in time taking a hard look at it maybe a few more sessions getting a few more clues I I think you're going to put it together and it's all going to make sense in the end as this story very much is it it makes a lot more sense today than it did uh, a year ago like it was very crazy like it was mushrooming off in many many different directions you know take a look at nuns look at how far off and left field you could go with that right you got to take a step back and analyze it again and and say does nuns really make sense in a religious sense with this story it might but in our case no way so there had to be another answer and not obvious answer either i might add right who would who would think of a classification of prisoner like really i just want to say thank you very welcome. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, like, I'm already excited for for uh, episode four. Episode four, yeah. There's probably enough information to do that, but I'd have to go back again. I'm getting to a, a period where I'm starting to go back through some of the stuff that I thought I had complete to find even more detail. Because some of these clues aren't clues to new situations. They're clues that expand on uh, on stuff that I've already looked at. So it's making that part of the story that much bigger. Jim, are you okay to explain to people what you told me at your Christmas session? 
Christmas session. Oh, yeah, the Christmas session. Do you, do yeah, you, yeah. like, when you, what you told me about scanning all of the notes? Scan, oh, yes, yes, scanning all the notes. Um, yeah, that was kind of funny, actually. I, uh, um, doing this kind of work, I'm a visual person, and to sit in a chair in front of a computer, just imagine yourself cramming for, for an exam or something, right, how mindless that is. Like, it's not very creative. Uh, how do you get your brain to work especially in different tangents that you have to use to do this kind of investigation. Staring at a computer screen, it's not going to happen. Not for me anyway. I like to get up, walk around, pace, look at different things, you know, maybe actually do something else, like even watch TV. And I'll still, part of my brain will be working on this while I'm watching a show. And um, so I have this little computer screen, like same size as yours there. Not good enough. So I decided uh, I was going to go and buy a big screen television, nice ultra high definition jobby, expensive, put it on the wall, and I could look at at least a bigger screen. Then I went and I scanned all of your notes, and well, just about everything I've got, I've scanned, and I would put them up in different parts of that screen so I could see them all. Because one session's worth of notes is not just defining one sessions bit of information you might give me something from like a year ago like give you something that's i haven't even started yet that i don't even know about might be on that page right and something that i'm actually looking for today and so to look at one set of notes is not going to do it right so you need to have your eyes on five six seven ten different things and then you could start recognizing patterns and things that actually connect so that, that worked out to be a, the, the best way to do it. But then when I mentioned the big TV, you started in on, on how you see things with the TV. Well, I just said that it was really cool that you did that because the way my gifts work, uh, like way back when I first started doing this, um, I would see it like a TV screen. The client could sit in front of me, but just behind their head or over to my left or over to my right or down at the floor, it was like I was looking at a TV screen. And I would look at the screen and then I'd look at my client and go, and I would describe what was on the TV screen. And they'd say, how do you know that? How can you see that? And I'd go, well, it's over there on the TV screen. <laughs> but then as time went on with these gifts, it was like, well, then there's two screens and then there was four screens and there was 10 screens. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Is that is that 10 lifetimes? And my spirit guides would say, yes, each TV screen is a life. And then I'd say, oh, well, that's really cool. Why are you showing me 10 lives? And they'd say, well, because they have a pattern. So how many TV screens show them with a sore tummy? And I would look and in each of the screens, they'd be holding their belly. And I'd go, well, out of the 10, seven. Well, that's what we're saying. She's had seven past lives where she has digestive issues. She has them again. And I'd look at my client and say, do you have digestive issues? Yes, I do. How do you know? Uh, you've had seven lifetimes with past past lives with digestive issues. This is going to run pretty deep for you. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe deeper than a surgery. <laughs> so then I could then I could see things in the way of as as a clairvoyant and I had to figure out how do I use that to my advantage to help people. So it would be well I I I called it threading the needle because if I could see the patterns 
then I might see a pattern, not just of a medical issue, but I might see a pattern of behavior. I might see a, a pattern where in seven lifetimes or eight lifetimes, were they people pleasers? Did they marry the same type of person? Did they have children? Did they stay single? And so these things became tools for people, it, not just to find something that was bad, but how did I find all the good? So if she's in a situation now, this client, could I go into the TV screens and find ways to help them? So the TV screens became important. And then it was like, well, could a TV screen show me their spine? Could it show me their organs? Could it show me their bones? Could it show me blood? And lo and behold, it could. So it when you came in and you told me that you did this, I was so happy because it was just like, oh, somebody gets what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> somebody gets how you might be able to somehow, how do you manage to have so many gifts, remote viewing, smelling, and using all six senses, how do you manage to organize this? And how you kind of came in and said, well, you had all these notes. It was like, well, Jim figured out how to organize it. And Kelly and I and people with these gifts, we have to learn how to organize it. Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine. Like, I can only, I only know how I'm trying to figure this thing out. And organization's huge, especially when you're not getting, uh, you know, a story complete one day and another story complete the next day. Mm -hmm. Right? That'd be all too easy to put it all together, even if it was out of order. But you get bits and pieces from all over the place. That's, you don't know what story to apply it to, right? And, and exactly as you are wording that, Kelly and I can resonate with that in that when you have all these gifts and all these senses, we might be channeling a pattern and watching 10 TV screens of 10 lives. And somebody says, what's his nickname? And it's like, what? Because you're, you're, you're going and you're looking at all of these TV screens and they're like, well, if you're any good, you could tell me his nickname. Can't you talk to him? Can't you hear it? And it's like, um, I'm watching 10 TV screens and finding all of your patterns and you want to know a nickname? So it, not to say that I'm trying to be mean or rude to that client, but also to say, because I know they don't understand how you, how Kelly and I live like this, but this was just a great way of, of you walked in and described it. And it was like, oh, th this is a great way to use this to explain it. Is that good? Oh, yeah, yeah. definitely. Will you come back? Sure. Excellent. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. The story is nowhere near over yet. We, you know, we, ha we have to get it finished. Well, and I know that um, perhaps when you come back next, we also have to talk about your, oh, if you're, if you're okay with it, your Christmas gift. Oh, yes. And how, how Grandpa wanted to gift you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Awesome. I'm going to close. Um, and just a little something extra at the end of this podcast, like we've done with you before, Jim. Uh, we always encourage people to uh, send in questions or comments. But the other thing that we like to do when you're here is to encourage people to send in information or pictures um, if they have things that resonate with um, what they're hearing today or they have clues that they feel can help you along your adventure. Um, so please, if you want to do any of that, you can email us at info at and we will forward everything on to, uh, to Jim happily. And uh, we look forward to talking to everyone next Saturday. Jim, thank you very much for today. 
All right. See you next time. Thanks, Jim.